Our debate today is about the tar sands and the future of Alberta, and our speaker is Andrew Nikiforek. I'd like to now invite Andrew Nikiforek back up to the podium. Please use the microphone at the back of the room when you come to ask your questions. State your name first. Keep your preamble short and limit yourself to just one or two questions. And no questions from the floor, please, because it is being recorded. Klaus Jurek, I hate to be the first one. Um, that, that's good. You, you, bro- you break the ice. That I, yeah, question. that's why I came. Yes. Um, just one quick question. I asked you this question previously, um, Andrew. Uh, given the magnitude of the destruction and pollution which you described and, and, and showed us so vividly, why do Albertans and Canadians not revolt in mass? Well, I mean, Canadians, number one, we haven't had a, uh, uh, any kind of no- national conversation about this project at all. But, and polls show that only three out of ten Canadians are aware of the fact that we are now, now the number one supplier of oil to the United States. Only two out of ten Americans are, are, are aware of this. So that's the, the, the first issue, is just general ignorance about it. Um, and then, <clears throat> you know, different parts of the country are having very different par- kinds of conversations, but they're not, they're not knit together yet. You know, in, in British Columbia, you go to British Columbia and they think, you know, what the hell are you guys doing in Alberta? I mean, this is absolute madness. Um, you know, but most of them don't realize that 10% of the uh, gasoline now that, that people in Vancouver are running on is coming, coming from the tar sands. Um, you know, you, it, in, in Atlantic Canada, they're deeply upset about so the social implications of this project. I mean, how can Atlantic Canada develop its economy if all of its able-bodied uh, citizens are working somewhere else and, 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 and sending some money home? And now I, I was in Nova Scotia for a week. I can't tell you how many stories I heard about young men coming home with the only thing in their pocket being their return air, airplane ticket. It's only the middle-aged guys my age who actually were able, you know, are able to save something and, and send something home. So they're saying, look, this is not sustainable. This is no way to run a country. Uh, that the, the only way you can provide employment for people is by sending them essentially to, to work in open pit mines in northern Alberta in the long run. This is, you know, so you know, the, the reason Canadians aren't yet engaged on this issue is because we've, we've failed to have this dialogue and in our media – uh, has played a role in this because, you know, here's the world's largest energy project. What country in the world would have the world's largest capital project, largest engineering project, largest uh, uh, energy project um, in their backyard without having a whole bunch of uh, news media bureaus there covering the event? I mean, this is an extraordinary event. Whether you're for it or get it, get it doesn't matter. It's an extraordinary event, okay. unprecedented on, on, on a global scale. Where was the Globe? Where was uh, um, CTV? Where was uh, the National Post? Uh, where was the CBC? I mean, they weren't there. So, you know, people hear stories, but, but they're, they, they haven't been, been, been part of the story from, from the very beginning. I'm going to cut you off there because I know there are people with questions. Thank you, Andrew. A very stimulating talk. My name is uh, Cheryl Bradley. And I'm wondering if you can comment on the uses that is made of the oil that comes from the tar sands. I get confused when I hear the Pembinas say that we could green our grid in Alberta and become carbon-free 
basing, using solar and wind and hydro. Uh, but the uses of the oil from the sands are not for our grid, right? It's used as I, do we use any at all in Alberta? And if so, what do we use it for? Uh, and I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, often when we have this discussion, people feel like, well, I should do something as an individual, cut down on my energy needs. But my sense is that we need bigger public policy uh, to deal with these issues, that it isn't up to the individual in terms of energy conservation. So I d- just some guidance on that would be appreciated. All right. Those are good, good questions, Cheryl. Um, if, if we were to stop tar sands production tomorrow, uh, Alberta would essentially have no oil basically to run on. The majority of our oil that we run on in this province is coming is coming from the tar sands, some of it being mixed with some what's left of conventional oil in the province. But, but that's what we're running on as a province. That's our central source of energy for transportation fuel. Um, now, what about this issue of, of getting on to renewables and, and how would we offset um, uh carbon production in the tar sands. Oh, by the way, 20% of the carbon that is made from uh, from fossil fuels comes from the actual production of fossil fuels. The other 80% comes from us burning those fuels. So that makes every one of us in this room part of this project and part of this problem. Okay? And the, the problem here is that we don't have any public policy addressing that issue. I mean, you talk to, to, oil, to, to oil sands companies in Calgary, and I know lots of people and lots of different companies. And, and by the way, many of them have read the book, and many of them have said, you know what, there's more here than we can, ag- that, than we can agree with than we disagree with. Their big issue is conservation. Why doesn't this province have a conservation program that discourages Albertans from consuming fossil fuels at the rate we are now consuming them? All right, six, an average of 60 barrels a year per person. The average for Canada is 25 barrels per person. And um, and they're saying, look, if, if you're to do that, a whole bunch of good things would happen. Our carbon footprint would go down. Uh, we would have all kinds of energy so- savings with that. We could actually export more for higher prices, perhaps, if we really manage the resource well, but we're not. Um, then a whole bunch of things could happen there. Now, now comes another issue about, about you know, uh, adding value to bitumen, okay, because bitumen is a really poor product. So, and we've got upgraders, two upgraders in uh, Fort McMurray. We've got an upgrader in Edmonton, and then we have a bunch of associated refineries. Um, if you want to make real money on bitumen, as Peter Lougheed uh, maintained and put the policy out there, you have to add value to it. There's a 30% price differential between bitumen and West Texas crude. So if you're only getting royalties on bitumen and not on the final product, you're losing out. If you're not making the final product, you're losing out. And uh, I think somewhere between 30 and 40% of what we export now to the United States is bitumen. So the Americans will add the value. They'll make the bucks. They'll get the jobs. They'll also get all the air pollution and water pollution associated with upgrading and refining bitumen too. So uh, what we haven't got in this province so far is really uh, uh, something that, like the Americans have, an accountability office that would put forward really good public policy to deal with some of these issues. And, you know, and someone should have 10 years ago uh, caught on to the fact that you can't, for every kilogram of carbon we produce in the tar sands, we should have had a program to take two kilograms off the table somewhere else in the economy. So you deal that by dealing with this whole issue of fugitive emissions in the patch, um, uh, zero carbon housing, um, geothermal, solar, 
wind, and you steadily make those commis- commitments and investments so that you prepare yourself for the future and don't get stuck in a 19th century economy, um, which is the export of, of one staple, and that is bitumen at this point in time. Thank you. Oh, Cheryl, I, don't, I think I've <coughs> Thanks. part Next of Next so. question, please. Hi, my name is Stacy, and I have a question for you regarding nuclear energy. Do you think it's a safe, greener option for not only Alberta but for Canada? And do you see that becoming our main source of energy within the future? Okay, good question. Um, Nuclear power is probably the world's most expensive energy, and uh, very few people in the free market are prepared to invest in it, which probably explains why no nuclear power plant has been built in North America without your money, taxpayers' money, okay? because of the liabilities, the cost, and, and, and all sorts of things. Any number of environmentalists have argued, but you know what, we've got to go this way because after about 10 years in operation, you know, the greenhouse gas footprint of a nuclear power plant is, is gone because there, there's a huge footprint there with the refining, processing of uranium, the building of the plant, and all that sort of stuff. But afterwards, after 10 years, then you've pretty much got a, a, a green facility. But it's huge. It's massive. It's authoritarian in its nature. I mean, you've got to have sort of this high priest class of physicists operating the whole damn thing so it doesn't explode on you. So um, so there are really almost two, two things here. You can make the argument that, yes, if, if the world is going to go green and we're going to get off fossil fuels, we're going to have to build some nuclear power plants. That's an argument worth having. But the argument we're having in Alberta is a different argument. The the argument is we have three nuclear plants proposed for northern Alberta, two in the Peace River region, and one in White Court. Um, And two on the North Saskatchewan River in Saskatchewan. They're being proposed to accelerate bitumen production. Um, And what what they are needed for, uh, one way to produce bitumen is to put electrodes in the ground, and the electrodes would melt the bitumen. Uh, heat the ground up to 600 degrees Celsius. You melt the bitumen out of rock or out of sand, and uh, then you produce the, the oil and the gas that's produced as a result. Shell has got a pilot project in Colorado doing this right now. Shell owns most of the reserves in Peace River Country, by the way. Um, they, Shell knows they can't produce this resource without tremendous tremendous amount of electricity. Um, and we're talking about you know tens of thousands of electrodes in the ground over huge areas, right? Um, they would need nuclear power to do that. Uh, the the uh, steam plants in, in Fort McMurray also know that their natural gas consumption is unsustainable, only sustained at this point in time by the fact that it's a tax write-off. Natural gas is a tax write-off for the and so you and I are all paying for this natural gas being burned to produce bitumen. Um, and so they're also actively talking about the use of, of nuclear power plants. Shella Lecklet, who's with the Uppsala Depletion Group in Sweden, has made the argument that, you know, we'll never meet any of our targets unless uh, – or for three, five million barrels a day unless we go nuclear. And we'll also need nuclear to provide the power for carbon capture and storage because it's so energy intensive. I mean, 30% of, of, of the power of a coal-fired plant is has to be used to capture the carbon. So we've got some pretty incredible debates that are going to take place in this province about, well, who's going to pay for this? What will the legacy costs be? And will this be used to accelerate bitumen production? And then there's the fourth issue, um, is that a lot of these projects are being proposed because the United States knows it's going to have critical uh, power shortages in the future due to climate change and the availability of water to cool their thermal uh, power plants, particularly in the Northwest and the U.S. Midwest. 
And you can go back and you can find reports from the Argonne Laboratories and Idaho National Laboratories basically saying, well, you know, uh, and as well as from the U.S. Department of Energy, saying, well, where are we going to find the water to, for, for nukes? Well, it's northern flowing rivers in Canada. So that's another issue. And neither one of those issues, accelerating vitamin production and uh, secure electricity export to the United States, is, has been put on the table in this nuclear debate yet and should be. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question, please. Hello, and thank you for coming. That was a very illuminating talk. Now, there's a lot of questions I'd love to ask. Would you and tell I'll us your name, please? Oh, right. I thought everyone knew. Sorry, my name is Isaac. Missed all of that part. Thank you. And there's a lot of questions I would like to ask, but I think ultimately it comes down to this. Something has to happen. And you've spoken already about a conversation, that a dialogue that ought to be happening between the nation and the people, especially among the people, to decide properly where we want to go with this. Now, in an ideal situation, the government initiates that dialogue. That hasn't happened. Now, when I think about the number of people who are aware of the problem, but it's in the back of their mind, kind of unconscious, we ignore it, it'll go away. The amount of people who are aware, but are pathetic and apathetic, and the amount of people who actually try and make a difference about it. How do you think it's the best way to go about initiating that dialogue from a grassroots perspective? Okay, thank you. Okay, well, I think that grassroots dialogue has begun, um, and it has begun because of the financial meltdown and 40 buck a barrel oil and what that means to Alberta. And as we see more and more layoffs, and we see already the province has gone into deficit uh, financing, um, I think you're going to find more and more Albertans are going to be asking the question, what the hell is going on here and who's running this joint? And, um, and why haven't we got something more to show for what has happened here? And why have we got this global mess? And why are so many people talking about the, the tar sands um, as dirty oil? And it's a conversation we could not have when oil was 150 bucks a barrel. There's too much money on the table. We've got to feed demand. We've got to keep the world running. You know, the, 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 all of the careless and, and foolhardy rhetoric that was coming from our politicians. That's all gone now, right? And, uh, and, and I think the average Albertan is beginning to ask some serious questions um, because many of them are hurting. We've got, you know, we've got about 30% of the population, you know, works in the oil patch, understandably. And many of them are, have been laid off. And they need to start asking some serious questions about the pace and scale of development in this in this province because we had options. You know, we had the, we could have followed the Peter principles. And Peter Lougheed said repeatedly, one project at a time, get your fair share, save for the future, solve your environmental problems. Okay, that's all doable. That uh, what's the rush here? You know, what is the friggin' rush? And who are we serving? We're not serving Albertans. The Americans, when I, you know, go, go, when I talk to Americans about this, I mean, they're absolutely stunned and appalled at what we have done to accelerate bitumen production to the United States. And now we're being accused of dumping uh, or, uh, you know, bitumen on, on, the, on the market in Oklahoma and places like that. They're thinking, what the hell is the matter with you guys? You know, why are you using that much water? You're using the same amount as an irrigation project in California. Why would you use water to do that? Why wouldn't you be smarter than that? And this carbon problem, deal with it, guys. Otherwise, we're not going to want your oil. And deal with it quickly. So the grassroots conversation has begun. And um, it, it would ne- by the way, governments are not going to start this conversation. 
to, to them, it's all about the money. And as long as they've got the money, then they can do what they want to do. And, and uh, so the grass, the, this conversation has to begin at a grassroots level. And, and the ultimate trigger, I think, here for most people will, in the end, be fiscal accountability. You know, and, and, and they, that's, that's where the conversation has got to go because nothing else will change until we take the money off the table and make these people accountable to us again. As, and, and, you know, make them represent us as Albertans as opposed to representing the resource. They've done a good job of, of well, I would, I would argue that they've done even a very poor job of representing the resource because look at the, the, the mess we're in globally. So. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Uh, my name is James Moore. Thank you very much for coming here. My question is, uh, in the context of the last question, speak to uh, the firing of Lorne Gibson, the chief electoral officer, and his recommendations to this government, which basically said, why don't you practice democracy in this province? Why don't you make it possible for people to vote, unlike the fiasco of the last election? Could you comment on that, please? Well, I think the firing of Lauren Gibson um, is, is another example of petropolitics at work. Uh, Gibson came to this province and said, you know, look, you've, you've been very careless with how you have, have uh, um, nourished your democracy. And he suggested uh, a number of radical, important reforms, uh, radical only in the sense that they were extremely conservative. He didn't think uh, uh, you should be running a democracy the way uh, the Saudi Arabia runs a monarchy. And, um, and he was... You know, and the government was uh, pretty straightforward about it. Said, we, "Well, we don't want you here. We, we haven't got a job for you." And it was their same response to Fred Dunn, the Auditor General, when he started raising question about how much money you're leaving on the table. And it's important not to leave money on the table. If you leave money on the table, someone's going to go for it, and probably will spend it unwisely, like the federal government or the oil companies. In which case, they used all that extra cash to uh, to basically burn as they were running running up their capital costs in tar sands production. All right? It allowed them to, to really engage in, 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 uh, in, in developments that, that were just unbelievably way too expensive. So, yeah, a classic case of petropolitics at work in this province. Okay, fine. We're going to have time probably just for three more questions. So if you've got a question, please come up to the mic so I know that there are questions. Please, questioners, keep your questions short. And speaker, your answers. Also, we get three more. Thank Thank you. My name is Tad Mitsui. My question is about petrochemical material. I have a crazy uh, stepbrother who has a record of being fired from many, many, many petrochemical companies. And he's 86 and he doesn't have a pension. Because he kept on insisting that burning a fossil is crazy. If we run out of petrochemical material, where will our clothing come from? Building material come from, etc., etc. And we are burning it. It's totally madness. What do you think about this? I, your observation is absolutely correct. I mean, uh, everyone here in this room is coated in, in hydrocarbons. Our clothes are all coming mostly from hydrocarbons. The uh, head of one very famous uh, uh, clothing manufacturer in California, Patagonia, he is having a fit about this. He figures if we don't start conserving fossil fuels, within 50 years we'll all be buck naked on this planet. <laughs> so, uh, um, 
And there are much smarter uses for fossil fuels than, than as a transportation. And, and just a quick illustration, if I may. Um, the combustion of a fossil fuel in, in, in a car is incredibly inefficient. It's around the nature of you're only capturing about 20 to 30 percent of the energy in that, in that fuel. So, I mean, this is probably a good reason why the automobile industry is, is on its way out here. The, but if you had replaced the combustion engine with an electric drivetrain, um, you ha- increase the, the energy efficiency by, by 80%. So uh, just an, an example of how we've, you know, we, we've been living on cheap oil. Cheap oil is now gone, and the reality is that we've wasted an awful lot of it. So, Okay, next question, please. Uh, thank you for your presentation, Andrew. Uh, my question is a very quick one. The, the government uh, just announced that they are launching a public education campaign to counter all of the disinformation that is out there about the uh, oil sands, including the National Geographic and and other environmental groups and so on. I'm just wondering if you would just comment on how the government is responding to all of this uh, perceived negative information that's out there. The questioner's name is Bob Campbell. Uh, they're making a classic mistake. I mean, they've they've adopted the Soviet model of we're going to try and pretend that nothing is wrong here and that everything we've done in this province is correct. And really what they should have done, and they had lots of opportunities to do it, was, you know what, we've made some mistakes here. We've developed this resource too quickly. Uh, we haven't put in the, the adequate environmental safeguards. And... Um, and you're right, we haven't saved the money, and we also haven't done a good job of collecting the money. We can do a better job. And had they said, come out and said those things, um, you know, what is Greenpeace and what are all the environmental groups, what are the investors, and what, what is everyone else going to have going to say? Or they're going to say, well, great, let's get on with the job then. But now they have made themselves a bigger target. And strategically, this is the worst possible thing this government could be doing. And, and they are wasting your taxpayers' dollars – it's kind of like, you know, giving a whole bunch of money to uh, the executives at AIG for failing. And now we're taking, you know, $25 million and to defend uh, really bad practices and lies and deception that our government has been guilty of. Not smart. Okay. So this is going to have to be the last question, I'm afraid. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Frank Toth. I am very much agreement, uh, in agreement with you, Andrew. Uh, you're... Uh, common sense finally to the population of Alberta especially. I just want to ask you uh, of your very good friend, Professor Schindler, Edmonton, one of the most renowned water experts in the world. Do you know him basically because we know that you've been, they've been trying to fire him from the start of this whole adventure. And, and maybe with all your research, maybe you, have you come up with a truth serum <laughs> that we could, we, could, we could supply the legislature dining room. Okay, thank you. Andrew, that's a wonderful final question you've got there. Um, <laughs> great idea. Yeah, I, I, I'm not in the truth serum business, I guess, but I, uh, um, it, would, it would be hard to administer to some of those folks, I think. Uh, <clears throat> As for David Schindler, David Schindler is alive and well, and he's he's working uh, um, um, on on a lot of these issues. As is his wife um, Suzanne Bailey, who's one of the world's top wetland ecologists, and you know they they have repeatedly raised concerns about water consumption and the production of wastewater, and 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 the importance of getting strategies together to to deal with those issues quickly. So thank you. 
Thank you. And a big hand for Andrew Nicky Fork, please.